How many, show of hands here, how many have seen, know, and love The Princess Bride? Okay, good, good. I I knew I was in the right place. So uh, one of the best lines in that movie, there's so many, but one of the best lines is when Iniego, he corrects Vincini because Vincini always uses the word inconceivable. And he, he tells him, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. So taking that and applying it to our series, keep it in context, uh, certainly in Ego we could hear him probably saying this as it relates to all the taking out of context that happens. You know, you keep using that Bible verse. I do not think it means what you think it means. And that certainly would apply to the different passages we've looked at throughout this series already that are frequently taken out of context. And certainly that specifically applies to the verse that we're going to focus in on today that also just so frequently gets taken out of context, unfortunately. That verse specifically today that we're going to focus in on is Romans 8.28. Yeah, you know it. You love it. You quote it. Nothing wrong with that. But Romans 8.28 says this, We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. You see it on coffee mugs, you see it on bumper stickers, uh, it's referenced, it's, it's at award shows like the Grammys and the Oscars, it's cited. The question is, what does all things work together for good mean? What does it really mean? And to answer that question, we have to remind ourselves that context matters. Context matters. That's how you determine what a verse means and what it doesn't mean. So context matters, and that certainly applies to this verse along with all the other passages we've been looking at in this series. And so for the context around this verse, we have to start all the way back up at verse 16. So I would invite you and encourage you, please, to look at your copy of God's Word, and Romans 8, 16 is where we're going to begin. Context is involving looking at the the verses that come before the verse you're narrowing in on, zeroing in on, and the verses that come after it. And what what does that do for the whole picture, the big picture? That's what we're looking for when we look at context. And so to do that, we'll look at this passage as a whole. Romans 8, 16 through 27, then we'll come back around to verse 28. Romans 8, 16, this is God's Word. The Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, Himself, God the Holy Spirit, testifies or bears witness together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him so that we may also be glorified with Him. So, What's going on in this passage and in the verses even before verse 16 is Paul is trying to get across to the Roman believers that there's, there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And that while naturally we are dead in our sins, the Holy Spirit through Christ has made us alive with Christ. And that as a result of that, we have been accepted into God's family. We're right with Him. We have right standing with Him, but only through Christ. 
And so then he goes on and he says, how do you know that you, you are a, children, a child of God? How do you know you've been made right? Well, the Holy Spirit bears witness or gives testimony that you are indeed his child. There was always a need for witnesses to verify anything that happened in this culture. And there were usually two or three in the Jewish tradition that needed to verify anything as being official. In the Roman custom, all you needed was really one witness. One witness to say, yes, I I bear witness to this fact. This is established. This is reality. And so the Apostle Paul here is saying, this is how you know. The Holy Spirit himself, God the Holy Spirit, he's going to testify with your spirit that you are God's child. And if you are God's children, here's what this means. You're heirs. You're royal heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. The emperors in the Roman culture had a, a tradition where they would very frequently adopt someone from the common people, bring them out of their life, bring them out of their situation, bring them out of their identity, and adopt them into their family. And when that happened... They were given a new name, they were given a new identity, and all the rights and privileges that came with being a child of the emperor was suddenly and forever theirs. That's what Paul is saying here, that because you are God's child through Christ, the Holy Spirit stands up and testifies, yes, they are now a child of God, and because of that status, they are heirs of God, all that is his and co-heirs with Christ. Now that sounds like a great deal, right? I mean, we can can get really excited about that, and we should. But there's also a part to that that we can very easily kind of rush past and miss the importance of that. It comes in the last part of verse 17. Right after he says, If children also heirs, heirs of God, and co-heirs with Christ, yay! If indeed we suffer with him. Oh, come on, Pastor. Why do you have to ruin a great, great morning, right? Hey, don't blame me. It's in God's word. And that phrase, if indeed, that's much better translated because or in as much. So it's an actuality that Paul is communicating here. It's an actuality. It's a, it's a fact. It's not a possibility. It's not if, like hypothetically, if this might happen. It's because or in as much as we suffer with him, that is also an identifier of us being a child of God, co-heirs with Christ. So you have the Holy Spirit's testimony He testifies inwardly with our spirit, but then, this is the part that we just don't like, if indeed or because we will suffer with him, that also proves that we are co-heirs with Christ. And here's a purpose in that, so that, you see that word, so that, in your text? If indeed or because in as much as we suffer with him, why? Why why do we need to suffer with him? So that we may also be glorified with him. So the goal for every Christian 
is to be glorified with Christ. That's the end goal, the end result of our sanctification, our salvation. But before we are glorified with Christ, here it is, we're going to suffer with Him. We're going to suffer with our Savior. Like He suffered, we too will suffer. It's a fact. It's an absolute established reality. And it's part, it's what marks the child of God and being co-heirs with Christ. Being co-heirs with Christ, it's not just all the glory and the, and the good stuff and the, the great things that are to come. That's part of it, yes, but it's also in the here and now, the nasty now and now, suffering. Suffering. Paul expressed a similar idea in 2 Timothy 3.12 when he said, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Will be. Not might be. Possibly will be. It's going to happen. So what that means for us, as unpleasant as it might be, is that our sharing in suffering as believers, as Christians, is actually a condition and verification of our future glorification. You understand me on that? You're with me? Our suffering in this life, it's actually a condition and a verification of the fact of our future glorification. So as far as God is concerned, it's all part of the plan for those who are part of his son and co-heirs with him. It's all part of the plan, suffering, as much as we don't like that word or that concept. So with that in mind, let's look still in this text. Verse 18, the Apostle Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, which he just said it's going to happen, it's going to mark all who are co-heirs with Christ, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. So there's the good news. There's the good perspective. It's all about perspective here. Paul is saying, don't mistake the fact that if you are co-heirs with Christ, if you're in Him, you get all the blessings of being a co-heir with Him and an heir of God. You get all the promised glory of, of heaven. But until then, in this life, you're going to suffer. It's going to happen. But take heart, cheer up. The sufferings of this present time that you're going to deal with that are going to come your way, they're still not even worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. Then verse 19, he says, For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation... For God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility. Futility there means uh, emptiness, frailty, no purpose. That's what happened when Adam and Eve sinned and when man fell in the garden. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together 
with labor pains until now. Mamas, you know what that's like. You remember that. Nobody has to talk to you about uh, the, the pain of childbirth if you've gone through that. It's, you know, not pleasant, right? There's pain, there's anguish, there's agony, which you can't imagine unless you go through it. But then the result of that doesn't compare with the agony before it, right? That resulting precious child, that, that miracle, it, it eclipses all the pain that went before that. That's what Paul is, is talking about here. The whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves, who have the Spirit as the first fruits, the, the deposit of that future glory, we also groan within ourselves eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. You know what that's like. Don't you, don't you have that? Don't you identify with Paul here? Can't you say, yes, absolutely, I, I do. I groan within myself. I, just, I want all that is promised to be finally here and, and in front of me fulfilled. I want the culmination of it all. I want the, I want the restoration of all things. I, I, I want that. I eagerly wait for that. I groan for that more and more and more as I go on in this life. Verse 24, he says, Now in this hope, the hope of that, that redemption of our bodies, the the promise of all things being made new, in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. Because who hopes for what he sees? Or who hopes for what he has? If you have something, you don't hope for it anymore. You have it, right? In verse 25, now if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. Then Paul provides an additional and very practical example of the Spirit's ministry, like he's been talking about already. Verse 26, in the same way, so here's the example, in the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness. And here's a specific weakness he's getting ready to identify. He also helps us in our weakness because we do not know what to pray for as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with inexpressible groanings. Aren't you glad he does that? Aren't you thankful that the Spirit of God himself prays for you? I'm thankful for that. There are times when I have no idea how I should pray or what I should pray for. And it's in those times, oh, how I need the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, to intercede for me. And then here's the promised result of His intercession. Verse 27. And He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit. So God the Father searches our hearts, knows the mind of God the Spirit. That's what Paul is saying here. He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because he intercedes for the saints, that's all of us, according to or in line with the will of God. That's that's something we can have absolute confidence in, believer, right there. That as the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit himself is interceding 
for us on our behalf as we pray. He's praying for us to God the Father. And, and the absolute confidence we have is that God the Father searches the mind of God the Spirit. They're in constant harmony, perfect unity. And that the Holy Spirit is interceding for us in perfect alignment with the Father's will for us. Isn't that a beautiful picture? You talk about harmony, perfect harmony, that's it. And we have absolute assurance of that. And because we have absolute confidence in that, because all of that is our reality, that then leads to verse 28. Romans 8, 28. So all of that was the, the laying of the foundation, the surrounding context of the verse that we know all so well and quote so often. That's why we have the confidence of verse 28. So let's look at that. Because of that reality, here's the reality of verse 28. We know, we know, we are convinced of, we have confidence in the fact that all things, all things, that's not just good things. That's hard things. That's unwanted, uncomfortable things. That's things we didn't see coming and didn't want. That's financial setbacks. That's health issues that we can't seem to find answers for. That's the pandemic that we're so tired of, and and yet it just keeps rearing its ugly, unwanted head. And the ones after the current one. That's the messed up government that we just can't see any way of of it getting better or improving. On and on I could go. I mean, you fill in the blank. All things, church, it means all things. It doesn't just mean good things, okay? It's all things in life, all things we deal with, all things that we find ourselves surrounded by. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God. There's a really, really important qualifier. This verse is not promising, the Apostle Paul is not promising all things just work together all the time for everybody. Yay! No, it's all things, the good, the bad, the ugly, everything in between, work together for the good, the ultimate good, of those who love God. How do we love God? How are we able to love God? How do we that are fallen and depraved and in rebellion against God, how do we suddenly love Him? How does that happen? Through the transformation that comes by knowing Christ. By coming to Christ. Jesus Christ doesn't just save your life. He enables you to love the God that you did not love before Him and apart from Him. So, in other words, those who are believers, those who are truly part of Christ, that's who this promise is for. And we know that because of the last phrase of this verse. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. His being God. For the good of those who love God, who are called according to His, pointing back to God, His purpose. So what that means for us is this. It's a principle that is absolutely 
true and what we've got to remember, and I just want to remind you of it, it's this. God's working for the believer's good in all things doesn't mean, doesn't mean that only good things will happen. So important to understand that, to believe that, to recall that, to apply that. God's working for the believer's good in all things, which is promised, doesn't mean that only good things will happen. And that flies in the face of and contradicts completely what is such a popular but so wrong message in our day, in our culture, and unfortunately within the church. The church as a whole, I mean. It's what we've been talking about throughout this whole series. As we've looked at the verses and passages that are so often mutilated and perverted and twisted, taken out of context, this completely contradicts that, but it's because that opinion, that philosophy, completely contradicts the truth in the Word of God. You see, God never promised us personal prosperity. Never did. He did, however, promise, and we see it implied in this text, in this passage, He did promise that what comes our way had to pass through His perfect hands and that it would be part of His perfect plan. That's what He promised. And He promises again and again and again in His Word that what comes our way has to pass through His perfect hands first before it comes to us. And it's going to be part of His perfect plan. If it passed through His perfect hands and it came into our lives by permission, whether he allowed it or directly initiated it, if our perfect God, our perfect Father, has allowed something into your life, believer, then believe that it's part of his perfect plan. And that he would accomplish his perfect plan through it and with it. That's what he promised. My grandma my dad's mom, loved salt. Loved it. She even put salt on her pizza. Yes. You do that? Really? Wow. Yeah, she salted her pizza. I I love salt too. I really do. My wife corrects me frequently because of how much salt I like. She says, why don't you taste that first before you put salt? I'm like, no, I, I know it's going to need salt. It doesn't matter what it is except pizza or cereal. Cereal, pizza, those two are kind of off the table. But just about everything else, yeah, I, I know I'm going to need salt for it. I love salt. Salt's great. It adds the flavor. It promotes the flavors of the food. Um, it also is a preserving agent, of course, you know, salt. Table salt is made up of both sodium and chloride. You know, that's the, uh, the way we designate it, NaCl. Sodium and chloride. Both sodium and chloride are deadly to us by themselves. But you put them together, and you have that oh-so-good ingredient that so many of us need for just about every meal, Right? That's, that's the picture of what Paul, as well as the Holy Spirit through him, was communicating here in Romans 8.28. Especially when kept within its intended context. 
It's that idea of something really bad, possibly, things that are really, really bad, but God is is able, as only He can, to bring them together, to work them together, and, and make something good out of it. And Scripture is full of examples of this reality. One of the most significant, one of my personal favorites, is Joseph's example in the Old Testament and his interaction with his brothers that betrayed him, came close to killing him, sold him into slavery. And Genesis 50-20, at the end of this saga, uh, records him telling his brothers as they stand before him in all of his glory, you meant evil against me, but God meant for good what you meant for evil, for the preserving of many lives. And as good as that sounds to us in our own language, in the Hebrew, which that was written in, recorded in, that was literally, you wove evil, but God rewove it together for good. Isn't that good? You wove this plan of yours and all that you did. You wove it for evil, but God, He rewove it together for good. Oh, church, aren't you glad that God is the grand weaver? He's the grand weaver. He takes all of these things in life, all these bad and difficult and discouraging circumstances, all these situations that we don't want, we wouldn't choose for ourselves, we beg Him to get us out of, and he takes all these things and he just he weaves them all together in this beautiful thread in this tapestry that that many times here in this life on this side of eternity we don't see but one day if not in this life sometimes he's so good that he lets us see it in this life but if not it's okay because one day when we are glorified with our glorious Savior. I promise you, He promises you, that you're going to be able to look back and you're going to be able to to see on, on one side of the tapestry all those threads that are all over the place and seem chaotic. But then you're going to see it flipped around and you're going to see that beautiful, glorious masterpiece that he was weaving the whole time. And we're all going to be able to say, oh, I get it. I see it now. It's glorious. It's beautiful. And then we're going to fall down on our knees and glorify him for what he did. God is the grand weaver. How many times have you seen that already in your life? I've seen it a, a whole lot, and I'm sure you have too. We have to keep our eyes open to that. With all that being said, remember, context matters, so we can't just look at what comes before Romans 8.28. We need to also look at what comes after it. So context matters. Romans 8.29, we're going to look at the next two verses, Romans 8.29 and 8.30. Romans 8.29, this connects back to the end of verse 28 when that verse says, those that are called according to His purpose, remember that? Hopefully it's still in front of you. Called according to His purpose. Romans 8.29 connects back to the end of verse 28 in that phrase especially. 
Romans 8.29 says this, For those He foreknew, remember to connect it back to that last statement, that are called according to His purpose, because this is now the explanation of what that purpose is. For those He foreknew, He also predestined, predetermined, to be conformed to the image of His Son. Wow! God in His omniscience and in His sovereignty knew you before anyone else knew you. And He knew those of you who would come to His Son, that He would draw to His Son and awaken from death, spiritual death and depravity and sin, draw to Himself, draw to His Son and salvation in His Son. And those He foreknew, He also Plan, predetermined, predestined. What did he predetermine? What did he predestine for those he foreknew? He predetermined that all would be conformed to the glorious, matchless image of his son. Why? To what end? What's the purpose in that? So that, look with me at this verse, so that. He, he, Jesus, the one we are to be conformed to, he would be the firstborn, that's the first place, the highest order, supreme, among many brothers and sisters. That's the the purpose in this predestined plan to conform us to the image of his son. It's all for the glory of the son, so that he would be the firstborn, the preeminent one among many brothers and sisters that come to God through him. Now, we're not going to look at these passages because of of time. We'd be here for a long, long time, and and goodness, this would be a sermon in itself and, and a series in itself. But I do want to draw your attention for your own personal study. I want to give you some homework. This would be an excellent correlation study to go deeper with just even this verse, to look at Ephesians 1, 3 through 6, and Colossians 1, 17 through 18. Really would encourage you to dig deeper on verse 29 by doing some correlation with those passages. Ephesians 1, 3 through 6, Colossians 1, 17 through 18. It really sheds deeper light uh, on what Paul is expressing here in this verse. But coming back to this verse and this message. This, what we just read in verse 29... This is the reason for God's plan. He adopts us into His family for the purpose, don't miss this church, for the purpose of making us like Jesus. That's why He adopts us into His family, to make us like Jesus. That's the key to the context of this well-known, well-loved verse. It's the whole key the whole key to the whole context of Romans 8.28. What is the good that that all things are working together for? We love to quote. We love to point back to what's the good that all things are working together for? Listen, it's it's not to make us temporarily or selfishly happy. It's to make us like Jesus. That's the goal. That's the good that all things that are not good are working together for, for our ultimate good. Oh, Christian, God 
is transforming us into new creations. And this is going to involve different types of suffering. I'm sorry, but it's so. Being transformed into new creations, it's not an easy or comfortable process. It's going to involve different types of suffering. It's going to involve the death of our own stubborn wills. It's going to involve the death of our selfish desires. It's going to involve the breaking away of of our desire to always be in control of everything, every circumstance. It's going to involve the painful chipping away of, of us always wanting to be comfortable. It's part of the plan. Romans 8.30. Last verse in this particular passage, in this context surrounding 8.28. Romans 8.30. It's a continuation of verse 29. And those He predestined, which we just you know, heard in verse 29... He also called. And those he called, he also justified. That's made right before himself. And those he justified, he also glorified. This verse, it's like a chain. It's an eternal chain of God's plan where every link is just beautiful and and glorious in itself, but it's part of a whole. It connects everything together. And this eternal chain of God's plan is the ultimate expression of His working all things together for our ultimate good. Foreknew, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. See, that all shows us this beautiful, glorious chain of God's plan. It shows us that God doesn't begin a work only to abandon it. Aren't you glad for that? God doesn't begin a work only to abandon it later. He finishes what He starts. And His work, His glorious, perfect work, isn't subject to specific situations. It's not dependent on ideal circumstances. And this chain of actions that God plans and carries out, it reminds us that our God is outside and above time. And He orders and orchestrates it all. He sees the whole thing. And that includes He sees our glorification. He sees our glorification. We don't see that yet. We're on this side. But He sees us already glorified with Christ. Standing there, unashamed, with nothing needing to be in between us as a barrier anymore. He sees it all. And if you know Jesus today, if you know Jesus, then the Father sees the whole you. He sees the finished you. You hear me on that? If you know Jesus, then the Father knows you and He sees the whole you, the finished you. He sees the finished product, that He's working all these things around us together for our ultimate good. The one that is like Jesus, sharing in His perfection and glory, eternally saved and eternally sinless. Hallelujah. Before I close this in prayer, I I cannot 
cover a passage like that and end on that note, talking about knowing Jesus and therefore the Father knowing you and seeing the finished product of you, the the glorious, perfect you there with Christ. I can't finish on that note without asking you a very important question. Do you know this Jesus? The Jesus that makes all this possible. The Jesus that makes it possible to know that all things will work together for your good. That's the only way you can have that promise personally. God doesn't promise personal prosperity. He does promise, though, that all who are in Christ to bring all things together for their ultimate good. So do you know that Jesus today? Do you know Him? Are you known by Him? Believer, I'm going to say this to you. Your eternity and your security in Jesus, that's, that's not a question. If you're truly in Him, then He is keeping you secure. Just as you couldn't save yourself, you can't keep yourself saved, but He does. He keeps you saved. But man, we can get so distracted, can't we? We can get so distracted by all those circumstances around us that we don't see good in, that God is working together for our good. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word, Your true, relevant, perfect Word. And thank You for Your perfect plan, Father, that truly for all who are in Your Son, all who love You by means of Your Son enabling us to love You and the Spirit inside of us giving us that ability to love You and seek You, Thank you for that promise that truly all things will, do, work together for our ultimate good. And thank you, thank you for knowing us before we were known by anyone else. Drawing us and calling us, justifying us. And already accomplishing our glorification. It's a done deal in your sight. Thank you. Help us to follow you, to love you, to trust you, to serve you with all of our being. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.